It's October 8th, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Arthritis numbers are rising, and people are finally talking about osteoarthritis. And it's about time we got into the difficult discussion of ACR 2021. 2,000 abstracts, and you're stuck in the Zoomatorium. How are you going to learn? We have some suggestions. Every patient with rheumatoid arthritis is unique, and some serologic differences may be associated with different outcomes. An exploratory study looked at two different RA treatments in patients who are positive for both anti-CCP and RF. Explore the data at rabiomarkers.com. First, let's begin with a report about the upadacitinib drug development program, specifically looking at the risks of developing shingles. That's right, herpes zoster. They had a compilation report, sort of a safety report, over 5,000 patients um, given uh, upadacitinib. And when they looked at it, they looked at it according to doses and comparator drugs. And the, so just so you know, the risk of you and I getting uh, herpes zoster is, you know, maybe, you know, one per 100 patient years or 10 per 1,000 patient years. Um, the risk uh, of the RA patients in that program who got methotrexate, it was 0.8 per 100 patient years. If you got methotrexate and adalimumab, it was 1.1 per 100 patient years. And then if you received the lower dose of nip, it was 15 milligrams. Uh, it was three per 100 patient years, and the higher dose, 30 milligrams, the dose you shouldn't use, is 5.3. So what does that tell you? A number that I've been throwing out quite a bit, that by using a JAK inhibitor, you have a four to five-fold increased risk of, de of developing herpes zoster. That's instructive, and it should tell you whether or not you want to, you know, have your patients preemptively uh, get started on uh, a vaccination with the Shingrix vaccine. I, I like to do it before I actually start the JAK inhibitor, but you don't have to. You can actually wait until maybe mid-cycle even. So like you could start it and then get it later on after you have this discussion. But I think it's a very important issue. You should know the numbers. Speaking of numbers, how many people do you think have fibromyalgia? I don't know. To me, it seems like everybody. I always quote a number around 5% in the general population, maybe as high as 7% if you look at just females. Well, a nice epidemiologic study looking at military recruits. So this is mostly men. And their overall numbers looking at the incidence of fibromyalgia using a number of, I think, reasonable tools said that their population risk was 2.9% prior to deployment. So prior to you know, being a soldier and falling in, in ditches and getting shot at. After deployment, that rate rose significantly um, to, to, what was it, 10%? Actually, if you did not have PTSD post-deployment, it didn't rise. Actually, in fact, it went down. It was like, zero, like 1%. But if you did have PTSD post-deployment, the numbers went up to 10%. And then if you were someone who was... Um, involved in a clinical trial or a study of post-military service PTSD was as high as 40%. So let's look at the numbers again. General population, males, young, 2.9%, probably higher in women, maybe 5% is about a right number. Um, but that life stress 
being in the military, being deployed, certainly stressful, will increase that, but not in everyone. That's kind of the interesting thing. Some get it, some don't. How are you going to know? It's a little bit like a thermos, isn't it? Um, but I like these numbers. Um, let's talk about some rare stuff. Scleroderma, tough disease, hard to manage. You know, you can get cancer with inflammatory myositis. Can you get cancer with scleroderma? Uh, an analysis looked at 1,400, almost 1,500 patients uh, and saw uh, looked at the, the risk of developing a cancer with that diagnosis, either after two years, three years, or five years. And the risks were really, really low. The I think the relative risk here, the odds ratios were, I'm sorry, these are percentages, 1.3%, 2.1%, and 3.5% at five years. And these were mostly breast, hematologic, and GYN malignancies. Um, the two-year risk of having a cancer with scleroderma was higher if you were uh, topoisomerase 1 antibody positive, or, and that's a threefold higher risk, or if you were U1 RNP positive, that's a fivefold increased risk. No higher risk if you had the RNA polymerase 3 antibody. So I think that's good news overall for our scleroderma patients. I found a nice, interesting report about kids with scleroderma, and specifically scleroderma sine scleroderma, meaning that these are kids, juveniles, who there were 52 patients, 10% were without skin disease. So this is systemic sclerosis sine scleroderma, okay? Um, when they reviewed those patients, the, the 10%, and they found two more in the literature, all of them, seven patients, by the way, it's not a large number, had cardiac manifestations, much more so than those who had skin involvement, 86% versus 16%. Without skin involvement, with skin involvement. Most of those were things like cardiomyopathy, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, there were some um, acute events. Um, these people had a longer diagnostic delay, 20 months versus eight months, not surprising with the absence of skin disease. Worse outcomes, 42% versus 6%, that would be like death and, and high morbidity outcomes. So this is a bad subset. I've seen a few of these early on in, in my training. I haven't seen any in the last 10 years, but you've got to be looking for it. So you're looking for cardiac and pulmonary manifestations that could be due to scleroderma without yet having scleroderma. Uh, as we know, our patients do well with COVID. The ones who don't do well are patients with autoimmune disease, lupus, who are active. Also, patients who are getting rituximab, maybe patients who are on JAK inhibitors or abatacept, but certainly rituximab. So this is a nice study. I think it's from Brazil. SLE patients hospitalized with ARDS due to COVID. This is severe COVID. Um, and, and yes, these kids, young adults, at higher risk of um, the worst outcomes, death and intubation, severe COVID outcomes. So they compared 319 lupus patients to 250,000 non-lupus patients. The risk of poor outcomes, death and, and other bad outcomes, 1.770% higher in lupus patients. And when they looked at all the comorbidities that contribute to bad outcomes in, in, in COVID patients, turns out lupus is actually one of the highest ones that they saw in their cohort. Again, I worry about our patients who are not well controlled uh, with lupus or any autoimmune disease. If, interestingly, the inflammatory arthritis patients have done better. A, uh, a, a cool report about metabolic syndrome being associated with radiographic and nodal OA. You know, metabolic syndrome comes on with aging, as does OA. Is that a casual association? They, they said not. Um, then when they compared patients who had metabolic syndrome to two to one to one to two to those who did not, 
um, with propensity matching, the metabolic syndrome patients had more x-ray nodal osteoarthritis dip and pip disease roughly a 30 to 50 percent increased risk and they had more hand pain okay something to look for oa look for metabolic disease metabolic disease could it be oa that's bothering them uh you know the worst kind of oa of course is in my opinion erosive hand oa uh, erosive inflammatory OA, again, affecting usually DIP and PIP joints. The study coming out of the Osteoarthritis Initiative looked prospectively at 3,300 patients who had no evidence of osteoarthritis going in and then looked over 48 months to, uh, or two, two years, I don't know, two or four years, doesn't matter, um, and 2.6% or a total of 86 patients out of the 3,300 developed hand OA that was of an erosive nature. These were older. They tended to be more female. They tended to have worse and progressive manifestations of osteoarthritis. And they saw more cortical thinning. They postulated that hand OA, erosive hand OA, is a disease of skeletal frailty. If you know what that means, send me a note. Speaking of osteoarthritis, the American Academy of Osteo of Orthopedic uh, Surgeons, AAOS, has come out with their updated clinical practice guideline for the management of OA. They largely looked at non-surgical management, um, and they updated, um, you know, almost two-thirds of their evidence-based recommendations for management of pain uh, and the patients overall uh, in favor um, Tylenol, acetaminophen. That's interesting because we have a lot of people now saying, I don't know about Tylenol. 3,000 milligrams a day as a way of managing uh, the disease and its pain. They're in favor of short-term pain benefits with intraarticular steroids. As you know, there's some controversy there with the ACR, really not recommending. The long-term results on intraarticular injections really are not good. If you want a short-term benefit, knock yourself out, maybe... Don't knock yourself out. You got to do the injection. But, you know, tell the patient, realistically, these are short-term benefits, and you're going to do something else to control their disease while you're waiting for the steroid to have its effects. They're in favor of non-steroidals, both topical and systemic, without much comment. They're against custom-made lateral wedges, dietary, uh, you know, uh, measures like turmeric. I was surprised. The evidence in turmeric, I think, is overwhelmingly positive. But they lump that along with chondroitin and glucosamine and berries and, uh, you know, hugging bark. I'm not sure. But anything kind of dietary things. They're against joint lavage and joint debridement, tens, braces, and PRPP, platelet-rich plasma, you know, uh, injections. It's sort of goofy. But, you know, the, a lot of athletes have gone along with it and gets a lot of play. Interestingly, it made no comment about stem cell therapy, regenerative therapy. Hmm. Might it be that there are a sizable number of orthopedists are doing that as a commercial venture? Shame on them. Uh, we have talked about psoriasis and, the, um, and its effects with the psoriatic arthritis. An interesting report from Joe Marola and his colleagues looked at the prevalence. Actually, this involves a lot of the big names in psoriasis. This is a, a, a claims-based study looking at the prevalence of psoriatic arthritis. And I thought this was interesting. Based on the severity of psoriasis, the risk of PSA goes up. 
I remember as a fellow, Paul Bergstress, the chief of dermatology at UC Southwestern, made that statement, and I said, no, 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 no. I was a know-it-all fellow. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, at the time, I actually found evidence to support my claim that you can have bad disease and almost no psoriasis, of course, but it has panned out over the years, and that this data says the same thing, that the prevalence um, based on mild diseases, 2.1 cases per 100 patient years, 9.9 or 10 per 100 patient years if you have moderate disease, and 17 or 18 per 100 patient years if you have severe cutaneous psoriasis. I thought that was interesting. Another really cool report comes from uh, Alexis Agdi and colleagues that looked at whether or not having uh, biologic therapy in those uh, treating their psoriasis, whether that uh, impacts the future risk of psoriatic arthritis. You know that I've had at least two reports in the recent past that have said that psoriasis patients treated with biologics have a less subsequent risk of psoriatic arthritis. I, it's been pointed out to me by others that there are methodologic flaws in those analyses, uh, and Alexis and their co-workers did their own analysis um, looking at, again, claims data, nearly 2 million psoriatic patients, psoriasis only, cutaneous only patients, 15,000 given a biologic, 2,000 on phototherapy or oral therapy, and they showed that the risk of psoriatic arthritis PSA was actually higher with a biologic, almost four and a half fold higher if you compared the risk to that scene with oral or phototherapy. Now, is that some channeling bias there or whatnot? But they're arguing against that idea that psoriasis is preclinical psoriatic arthritis, and you can alter the course by using aggressive therapies. Maybe not so. So the MMWR yesterday came out with its report on the prevalence of, of, of arthritis and activity limiting arthritis in the United States, that the numbers have gone up. They've gone up each time they look at that. They're looking at surveys done, like the NHAN survey, where they actually do really sort of detailed uh, in-person surveys of people, um, U.S. people from households, adults, who can answer the questions. This latest estimate covers the time period of 2016 to 2018. The numbers have gone up 23.7% of, of uh, American adults have arthritis. That's 58.5 million. And activity-limiting arthritis was seen in um, 44% of those people for a total number of 25.7 million who have activity-limiting arthritis. These numbers are up significantly compared to the 2013-2015 estimates where the numbers were respectively 54 million and 23, point, um, 23 million something. So I thought that was interesting. I think that's something we should pay attention. It's covered in the most recent MMWR. As you know, in episodes past, we have talked to you about ask a question, tell me a case. You know, we called it back talk. I've renamed it because no one understood what back talk was. In my family, back talk was usually followed by a head, a head slap, meaning, you know, there's no back talk in this family. Um, we just renamed it as ask Kush anything, questions and cases. We have four where we're going to go over. First, um, Dr. Darren Scroggy from uh, southeastern Alabama asked about a patient of his with psoriatic arthritis who developed ILD, interstitial lung disease, later found to be histoplasmosis 
and the patient was taking Remicade. So they stopped the Remicade. Patient was off Remicade for six months, was on itraconazole, and was now starting to flare. The question is, would an IL-17 or IL-23 targeted agent be a better alternative? Would you risk a TNF inhibitor while on itraconazole? And the rule is, with invasive fungal infections and with NTM, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, used to be called atypical mycobacteria, you never fully eradicate the infection. So with the MTB, you eradicate the infection, you can go back on a TNF inhibitor. Um, you can be on a TNF inhibitor, but with those invasive fungal and NTM infections, you never do. So you really should choose another drug, a non-TNF drug. Yes, if you have no other choices, you could keep them on background itraconazole forever and give them, you know, your safest TNF inhibitor, not Remicade in high doses, maybe Etanercept. Um, the numbers are much lower with Etanercept, clearly. Although there is still is a risk with all the TNF inhibitors. Yes, you should choose, Darren, another agent that would work for the PSA. You know, IL-17, IL-23, IL-1223, even tofacitinib, which is FDA approved for psoriatic arthritis. In that case, you don't need to be on background um, itraconazole, okay? Your patient should have completed the therapy, and you watch them, obviously, for their lung disease. Even a primalast would work here. Um, it need not only be given to patients with mild disease. It just has mild responses. Sometimes those responses are tremendous in people with really bad disease and mod mediocre in people with mild disease. Again, you know, less than 40% of patients are going to respond to oral or primalast. Uh, our second case is uh, from Russia, Dr. Elizaveta Belapetskaya. Let's listen to what she has to say. Hello, Dr. Kursh. I hope you're doing well. My name is uh, Yezavita Belaipetska. I'm a practicing rheumatologist from St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, so uh, here's my question. Do you recommend vaccination from COVID to your patients during flare? And when do you recommend against it? Thank you. Thank you, Elizaveta. That's really an interesting story, isn't it? I mean, um, and here's the bottom line. The bottom line is active disease, RA, PSA, lupus, is far more dangerous than the vaccine or the vaccine um, in one of those situations. So should I give the rituximab or should I give the vaccine? The patient needs a rituximab to control their GPA. Give the rituximab. You know, the benefits and hazards of, of, of the, the vaccine are small compared to the hazards of certain inflammatory diseases. Um, there, are no re there is no good research about treating patients who have active flares um, with the vaccine. It's likely that even though they have a heightened immune response, that they'll have a suboptimal immune response because the body is very involved in managing inflammation. Uh, and in generating inflammation. So um, I would say manage the disease first, then give the vaccine. Um, and clearly we have lots of experience with patients who are well controlled, safely getting the vaccine and avoiding, you know, um, COVID. Uh, it's the patients who have active disease who are at the highest risk, but those are ones you need to vaccinate. You got to get some control of disease. If, and if it looks like you're not, I would still vaccinate. Um, I don't think there's any heightened risk for more autoimmune phenomenon in patients during flares. But again, if you can avoid it, I would avoid it. Treat the disease first, then vaccinate is my general rule of thumb. We have a 
father-son pair of questions. Let's begin with the son. Uh, Dr. Rafi Rush from Toronto had an 81-year-old gal with psoriatic arthritis, bad renal disease, diabetes, a whole bunch of stuff, was on Humira for the PSA, admitted to the hospital with back pain, found to have an erosive lesion on the spine. Patient got really sick, really bad looking labs, um, given a lot of steroids, a lot of antibiotics. X-rays were done throughout the body. X-rays in the hand showed PSA erosions, but also showed gouty looking erosions in the feet. A DEC scan was done, dual energy CT scan, and they were looking at the discitis in the back where they saw an erosion. It was actually a giant tophus. Oh my goodness, this was all gout and a flare of gout. The patient's off antibiotics and just got started on allopurinol. He asked the question, any ways, any tricks of melting tophi fast? Patient's got a really low GFR. Can he, how can he increase the allopurinol? Uh, what about rasburicase, etc.? My answer was, you got to use allopurinol. I know she's got renal failure, but most people, not rheumatologists because they're too smart, most people are inhibited in using allopurinol with, you know, GFRs of less than 30. You should not be. Um, the risk of, you know, uh, renal insufficiency with gout therapies is mostly with colchicine, number one, and that's a big risk if they have renal impairment. And number two, nonsteroidals. Allopurinol, you can push all the way up. You just got to monitor their renal function. So allopurinol needs to be failed here, okay? And then you could use Cristexa. And I mean, that's actually the way the indication is um, patients going on Cristexa need to fail conventional therapy before that's considered. The problem is that Rafi says he doesn't have Cristexa in Canada. Um, he says that her, um, her uric acid, which was 888, I assume that's like millimoles per something, um, is now uh, almost at target uh, after um, six weeks. Uh, on allopurinol. He doesn't say what dose. He says he's also added an SGL2 inhibitor, with, uh, noting that the recent paper says that it lowers gout flares and SGL2 uh, inhibitors lower uric acid levels. It's a little bit like the vitamin C story and the phenofibrate story. The fact is, though, those adjunctive drugs that can lower uric acid levels work best at a mainly about 20% benefit um, in people not on urate-lowering therapy. If they're on urate-lowering therapy, my guess is you're not going to get much punch out of your SGL2 in, uh, inhibitor. But knock yourself out. I wish you, you know, move to the United States uh, and get the patient on um, Cristexa. Let's end with his dad. Perry Rush has got a good question. Perry. This is uh, Dr. Perry Rush from Toronto. My question is... Given that I've just received an email from the ACR that there are almost 2,000 abstracts at the next meeting, how does one deal with that? You know, no problem for a guy like Perry. Uh, he's, a, he's seriously into um, learning and going to these meetings. I see him at all the meetings. Um, Perry, I think you need a plan. And I can give you the room now plan. But this is what I see that people are doing. Uh, most people don't have a plan. And if you really want to learn from ACR, you need a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're not going to learn anything from ACR. You'll learn tid tidbits from your peers. Um, the first type is the tiger. And that's Perry sort of a tiger. He's going to dig in. He's going to go to the ACR website. He's going to go and do advanced search and search for terms so he can find the abstracts on the things that he's really interested in. So you find your, your thing, whatever that is. And you got to read all this stuff before. You need a hit list 
of what you're going to cover tomorrow. Now, you could do that the night before the meeting. I think it's better to do it two, three weeks before the meeting, leading up to it, and develop a hit list. Obviously, after that, you should attend all the plenary sessions. You should go to the year in review. You should go to the great debate. I don't like this year's great debate. You can figure out for yourself what you think. And I think that the late breaking abstracts is always a winner as far as revelations and things that were going to impact therapy. Now, that's the guy who really wants to ha be, you know, his butt in the seat um, or a serious Zoomatologist, you know, for eight hours a day for the four days of the meeting, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, beginning November the 5th. Um, if you are much more mobile and can't do that, you can follow social media. And social media is going to be covering this in a major way, um, more so than ever. Every year, the social media um, tweets get bigger and bigger, and you know, Room Now is a leader in that for many years. I think you should follow a few people. Um, you know, my Room Now faculty that do a great job of tweeting that you might want to follow, David Liu, Richard Conway, Janet Pope, Catherine Dow, Rachel Tate, Olga Petrina, Eric Dine, um, Morale El Marahi, uh, Robert Chow, Jeff Sparks. And then, you know, the ACR's got this new thing, ACR Ambassadors. They started last year. They've expanded this year. I think they got like 25 of them. Young rheumatologists will be tweeting and also doing that. So you could follow, you know, you could follow um, the ACR hashtag, uh, hashtag ACR21, uh, 2021, excuse me. So that's if you just want to do it on social media as you're running around, picking up the kids um, and, and or being in clinic. You can, you know, we, we look at this at Room Now as saying there's 2,000 abstracts. How do we get down to what you really need to look at? And we basically, basically create a funnel. We do that providing KOLs, key opinion leaders, who will do big-time uh, perspective videos that you can watch, and, and you can spend 15 minutes a day and watch those. You can watch our video we're going to do once a day called the Daily Recap, um, which we're going to have five faculty members sit around and talk about highlights of the day. You can look at the daily reports that I'm going to write and my faculty's going to write. You can follow a certain faculty member in their videos on our YouTube channel or on our ACR website. Roomnow.com will be our ACR website during the meeting. Um, you can search for your topic. You're a PSA person or a spa person or a lupus person. You click on the lupus tab or the spa tab on the left-hand margin. You'll see all the good things that are happening. Oh, and by the way, you'll see everything that's been loaded up in, in most recent to most distant, right? But there's another tab there called PDQ or, you know, show me just the good stuff. And then it'll just show you a, a smaller amount. So again, I'm narrowing the funnel from 2,000 to maybe 100 to maybe just 20 things that you've got to look at on, on Room Now. The other thing you can do on Room Now, prior to the meeting, go into your profile. That's in the upper right thing. You know, go in under your name and you can sign up for a topic email. I want to see all reports from the ACR on lupus. And at the end of the meeting, we're going to send you a topic email of all the things coming from the ACR on lupus. That's another, another way of doing it. Uh, another last way is waiting for the aftermath. You're too busy to invest eight hours a day. I mean, you're either someone who is a Zoomatologist, someone who's Zoom choosy, meaning I'm going to just sit here for an hour or two, or someone who's Zoom adverse, and they're not going to be able to sit and watch all the Zoom meetings and search around on a website that is, you know, may not be intuitively navigational for you. Um, but if not, you can wait for the aftermath. Many news outlets will provide reports of mainly industry-sponsored industry 
things, but some other non-industry sponsored things. And after the meeting, we'll have, you know, a month or two of, of highlighted what we thought was strong stuff coming out of ACR. And you could follow that on Room Now. Um, again, a lot of writing, a lot of videos, a lot of different reports that you're going to get. Um, maybe the best thing to do is organize you and your friends to get together and either meet daily or meet every other day during ACR and then have a meeting after ACR and let people talk about what they thought was impactful. Or if people don't want to do that, show a few videos from Room Now that says what's impactful. Again, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat here, but you need a plan, and I think you can do it. That's it for this week. Go to the website, check out these citations and more. Follow us during ACR Convergence or ACR 2021, the virtual meeting. We're going to be working hard for you. we got a lot of faculty, a lot of big-name people that are going to do interviews and panel discussions for us. I think you're going to enjoy that. Listen up. With such a broad treatment landscape for rheumatoid arthritis, it can be difficult to find an appropriate treatment option for your patients. Given that some detrimental effects of RA may be permanent, what can you do to get ahead of the situation? An exploratory study has been conducted investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for both anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor, which together are associated with higher disease activity. This study may suggest a different way to look at RA patients. See the results for yourself at rabiomarkers.com.